start by reading um, this scripture to us. It's in Titus, um, third chapter, and verses 1 through 11. He's talking to a pastor here. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are profitable um, and excellent for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogy, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Um, I pray that it would help transform us on this um, celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, his ministry uh, to this nation and to this world. Uh, please use it um, to um, create another opportunity for us to grow in grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In March of 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, of all the forms of inequality, injustice, and health is the most shocking and inhumane. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice and health is most shocking and inhumane. Now, while this quote has been applied to the public health crisis, care crisis in our country, Dr. King's legacy allows, and I believe calls, for a more ubiquitous and holistic approach to the word health. In fact, he followed up these words by saying, I see no alternative but direct action and creative nonviolence to raise the conscience of the nation." From Dr. King's words, we can see that the public health crisis injustice was not because there was pervasive physical, mental, and emotional health issues, but that certain people continued in unmitigated suffering 
because the souls of our nation were sick with unmitigated suffering. Here at Covenant College, you are in a most unique situation and receiving and being equipped in a most unique way. You are not um, only being given and even sharpened in what it takes to be mitigators in the market, in the culture, for the institutional and, 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 and physical health and market health of our world. You, believers here, are called to go out and not just deal with the symptoms of a fallen world, but as Dr. King said, with direct and creative nonviolence, raise the conscience of our nation and world. To, to actively intercede, to care for the public spiritual health of our world. To break out of ourselves, if you will, to break free from selfishness and personal passions and embrace the spiritual health of the community and world around us. To provide public spiritual health. In two ways I want us to focus on today from this letter to Titus. First, by being benefactors of the gospel in the public arena. By being benefactors of the gospel in the public arena. And secondly, by being benefactors of the gospel for the public good. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Let's read, we can read through these. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Now back in Roman Greco times, society along with the government were highly suspect and paranoid about Christianity. Would it be one of these religious sects that would cause just another uprising and be another suck and drain on resources? Will they be monastic and, and not pay taxes and not contribute to society? To the, to, to, will they play any role in the public arena? Will they be a help or a hurt to the benevolent and good goals of the government. And the Apostle Paul tells Titus to teach, right? To instruct the believers, to instruct the church, to be benefactors in the public arena by submitting to and obeying their rulers and authorities. To, to commit to be governed by the rules and laws of the government, its rulers and authorities. To, hate to be trite, but to be good law-abiding, tax-paying citizens. To not seek to establish their own Christian state. Not seeking to establish their own Christian government. But to as much as in their power and ability to be under the rule of their authorities. But there's a call to more here for believers. See, they are called to take their place in the public arena as submitted benefactors in ways that God has called the rulers and authorities to do for the people they lead. The Bible gives us examples of what it looks like um, in Psalm 72. It describes God using rulers, the kings, the authorities, and the government and the governing powers to do what? This is what it says. To judge your people rightly by being, be, be 
honorable to your meek and lowly. To stand up for the poor. To help the children of the needy. This is called to the rulers and authorities. To come down hard on the cruel tyrants. To rescue the poor at the first sign of need. The destitute who have run out of luck. Open a place in his heart for the down and out. To restore the wretched of the earth. To free them from tyranny and torture when they bleed. He bleeds, right? When they die, the ruler and authority dies. May all godless people enter this circle of blessing. That's in the Bible, right? In other words, benefactors and and philanthropists who give of their wealth and affluence and influence are, are called to do so for the good of the city and the nation for the things that we see mentioned right here in Psalm 72. This is the call that the apostle is saying to to Pastor Titus. Tell your people that they are called to do what I've called the rulers and authorities to do in caring for the poor and caring for the destitute and caring for the broken in society. You find a way, submit to that way so you can help and care for others. But honestly, when we look at the history of benefactors and philanthropists, just like in our society today, and and lobbyists in Roman Greco times, you had to be rich and famous, right? The powerful ruling class, the lobbyists and the corporations that are able with their worldly power to influence the rulers to bring gifts and good to the city, they were the ones that normally got called upon to be benefactors, to be philanthropists, to give to the government, to be trusted by the government. And Titus is saying this, guess what? All believers, all believers should approach the world as those who are wealthy and rich. Right? Wealthy and rich in the grace of the gospel and power of the Holy Spirit to effect change for the public good. Verse 3 through 7 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then it says in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out, here's the word, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might then become heirs, right? Inheritors, according to the hope of eternal life. It's almost like Titus is saying, at one time, you, you weren't much. Many of you, you could look at your bank account because that's all you were looking at, or you're looking at your world situation and saying, I don't have much. What could I possibly give? He's even going further than that when he talks, this list, talks about this list of people in verse 3. He is saying, you were just a street brawler for your own rights. Right? Like a gang protecting your own turf, a survivor, you were inwardly focused on your own good. With limited resources, you were actually unable to imagine yourself being philanthropic. 
because you were too busy just protecting your little piece of the pie, always living like someone is going to and, and is able to take what you have and take it away, hating any and everyone not like you, always skeptical about the man. And the scripture is saying, now that you are in God's family, if you are now in Christ, you are a philanthropic stakeholder in this world, in this nation, in your communities, in your neighborhoods, called by the gospel to bring influence. But what currency? It's a little different, and it's, it's amazing how things have changed. Because if you look historically, the church was made up of the poorest people around. Things have switched, y'all. Right? The church is rich and, and in the South, very powerful, even politically powerful. I did a, um, a conference for a church up in New York City. And, um, and I, I, I asked the, the pastor, what's the political environment like? He was like, we as a church, we don't get wrapped up in politics. I was like, why? He says, because we have no power in politics here. What? Yeah, we know who's going to win. And the values that normally go with our denomination don't win here. We have no power, so we don't get involved in it. We don't put our hope in it. We're not powerful. We don't have enough money even compared to the other organizations and groups in our city. But in the South, my goodness, church, people, evangelicals have power. But these folk were like the folk in, in the city. They, they didn't have anything. And yet Titus is saying, hey, you're the ones that are going to change the world. What currency, Titus? What currency, Paul? Some of these folk, husbands have walked out on them. Some of them have lost their whole family. Some of them have lost their inheritance because they came to Christianity. The gospel inheritance, he's saying, is what makes us rich in, here it is, ready? Here's the inheritance, here's the currency. Service. Submission. Sacrifice. Obedience. Kindness. And love. Aren't y'all happy? Isn't that what you always hoped would be in read at the will of whoever is, is leaving you something? I leave them service, submission. I, I leave them the ability to be kind. I leave them the ability to love. And I know. But that sounds unfair for those whose choice, politician or party or viewpoint or whose history with the authorities is not good. Right? 
But this, this call to be in public arena as benefactors is not about agreeing with the morals or the politics or accepting the dark history of your authorities. The, these Christians could have been under the tyrannical uh, Nero of Rome. We don't know. But this is a call to submit, right? To get in where you can fit in and make a fit in this world. To be a public market giver and grantor of things the world does not have. Of God's mercy and grace, right? In, in ways the rulers and authorities may not be giving or able to give because Jesus has made you believers rich in some of the world's rarest resources. Grace. Love. Peace. Joy. Hope. I remind you what the Bible says in the book of Ephesians. That our weapons and tools and let me say wealth and riches and influence and affluence are not of or like the world. Man, that is the hardest thing to accept. They are irregular and sometimes counterintuitive and weak feeling and weak looking. So sometimes when it comes to public policy and politics and political discussion and race and ethnicity and talking about gender and sexuality and abortion and economic theory, it looks like we are bringing hugs to thugs, right? And butter knives to a gunfight. Or about to get taken advantage of. And not taken seriously in the way the Bible calls us to approach the world. Because we come to serve. And do good. And be kind. And not use our time and turn to, to the power, or turn rather, to the power of tussling and fussing and criticizing and hating around politics and, and smearing folk and candidates and political leaders, but in transforming our world for the good God has for the world by what? It's, it's, it's right here in verse 2. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let me say this. It is easier to hear this when you're in power. Right? It's easier to hear this stuff. Like, you know, in our church, and I'll get back to this in a minute, sometimes Facebook and Instagram and everything, you would never think the same people were in the same church. The kind of stuff they say to each other. Look, eight years ago, the folk who were Obama supporters were saying, just be gentle and kind, right? And now, the folk who are Trump supporters are saying to the Obama supporters, just be gentle and kind. Can't you be a good, loving Christian and quit? The Bible says that we should pray for our authorities. And so some people are like, why weren't you saying that eight years ago? Right? So it's easy to hear when you sit in the place of privilege in society. It's easier to hear, be kind, right? Be nice, submit, be serviceable, like, like give your life to it. It's okay. And so we understand how extreme it must have been for Martin Luther King Jr. to lead a nonviolent protest. I must say, God's mercy and grace to you who are suffering right now and oppressed and morally and economics, 
economically suffocating under the present situation, not just in society, but even in the church situation. God's got you in this gospel thing. Because in verse 3, this is what we assume, this is what he's saying. And this is so hard, but, 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 but listen to this. He's saying, even the hated and the oppressed have been empowered by the gospel. Even the hated and oppressed are inheritors of the richness of the Holy Spirit. So here's the call, and this is what we saw, you know, in the legacy of, of Dr. King, that even, and even more so, according to the way the scripture reads, those who in verse 3 were hated and, and, and oppressed, right, are the ones who are called to submit themselves to the issues in lawful ways that what? Verse 2, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, are gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people for the, for the public good of people. Now look at these modifiers in verse 1 and verse 2. Every good work. Right? And then it says to speak evil of no one. Do we really live like this? I know I don't all the time. It's, just, it's really difficult. And then to show perfect courtesy, which means show perfect consideration, show perfect. You know, God has a way of using these words, perfect, and all, and everything, right? You're the omni-God, right? And now you're putting that on us. Be kind to everyone in all ways, in perfect ways. Show perfect kindness, consideration, meekness, and respect to who? All people great. The end and purpose of this public good, now hear this carefully, is not a new policy. Not a new politic. Not a new government. In fact, he says, submit to the government you have. They are tools to be good to people. Because the Lord didn't come to redeem moral issues and laws. He came to redeem people, and the rest follows and serves that purpose. As much as I pray and hope in some ways that Roe versus Wade would be overturned and replaced by a law more beneficial for the unborn child and the unplanned pregnancy, both mother and child, I've heard some data. I'm only going by data, I'm sure somebody maybe has an argument, to suggest that abortions were down under a pro-choice president. And there are a number of factors associated with that. But you know what I saw? Just in my little corner. Believers were moving in their freedom under a pro-choice president. And they focus on their hands 
and their hearts and their influence to the common good of an unborn child and not as much energy on pouting and pining and waiting and only lobbying for the law to change, but using the freedoms under the rulers to do a good work at the point of contact with the mothers and children and not only and just at the policy and political level. The scripture about doing good works and showing courtesy for all people is about our call as philanthropists, hear me, of God's grace to be more than pro-life. But as the Bible teaches, pro-people. Not just pro-issue, pro-party or pro-policy unless it is pro-the people we are called to do good for and by. How many of us had to ask myself the same question? Actually know or working with or go to church with or a fellow member eating at the Lord's table with in community group or class with someone who has been dealing has been with an unplanned and undesired pregnancy. Have you ever known a mother? or father by name in the struggle? Have you ever been to their home? Or are we just theologically and philosophically acquainted with the issue? I'm asking pro-choice and pro-life folks. The gospel calls us to more. To be driven by and to the people in the issue more than the issue with the people. That we would go after the issue only because we have a love for the people. Because God has a love for the people. I mean, think about the gospel itself. God so loved the world, the people of the world, that he set forth the policy and plan of salvation. It's the gospel. He looked at us with mercy and grace and then and for that took, an, it took on the issues that were hurting and killing us. Titus is calling us to care about the issues and the politics and the policy only as it accomplishes our call to provide public spiritual health and common good to the people. I can't emphasize how revolutionary Christianity is claiming and calling us to be. I mean, look at what it says here, that we basically, we must be benefactors for the public good, not just for people. That's easy, right? That's easier. But again, like I said, for all people. How revolutionary is that? Verse 2 and 3, and then look, look, we looked at verse 2 and 3. Now look at what it says in verse 8 as well. He says, the saying is a trustworthy, it's trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Christianity and believers and how they live should be universally beneficial to people. That we are not a sectarian beneficial, beneficially speaking faith. 
We are not a politically and economically split off in giving you the benefit, benefits faith. We're not a divided institution in this world that, that we are not only kind and beneficial if the right leader is in office or the right laws are in place or the right politic or social theory is shared by you or the right people are in power. We are called as people in our various countries and spheres of influence to be benefactors of God's grace to the influence for the good of whoever we live with in this world. Look at verse 4 through 7 again. It says, but when the goodness and and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The scripture is saying we should in our public lives be as widely, broadly, and liberally beneficial as God was and is in saving the world. That the God of the Bible did not require us to be a certain group of people. It's amazing how I hear us talk about benefits about who should get... You, you know what the, the, the translation for the word mercy is? Welfare. Right? It's amazing how... And then when you think about the fact that God's mercy is welfare for your soul, you were so broke and impoverished morally, continue to be so, that even the benefits of grace are based on God's charity is the word for you. He didn't just give a little bit so then you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The Bible says he richly poured it on you. He richly gave you welfare apart from the hope and requirement that one day you'll get it straight. Because as I look out, none of you has gotten it straight enough to receive his benefits because you've earned it. How is it that we evangelicals have this thought in our mind that we shouldn't be really that richly giving to those through a welfare system? Right? Like, and I understand the, like the, the trauma center, I know some good stuff there. Helping hurts and all. I, I read about awesome stuff. Great stuff. We did a study. Great. We want to do it. But we judge people. We, we actually withhold mercy and love from people because we think they have to kind of look like they're going to deserve it and earn it. They have to receive it with a degree of privilege. It has to be in, a, they have to know how to invest it properly, just like you have your Christianity, right? You've never squandered God's grace and mercy. I know you haven't. Or you couldn't be a Christian, right? Right? 
God of the Bible did not require us to be a certain group of people or ethnicity or socioeconomic or, or vote for his party, regardless of where you are on a gender or sexuality spectrum. He still was a good God to you. Regardless of you name it, he extended his mercy to you. Even before you became believers and were secure, securely in his camp. If you are a believer, you are compelled by God's grace to you to do the same. That you should be unhindered unhindered and unlimited and look for new people groups and new ways to bring what is excellent and profitable, verse 8 says, for people with, with, with the, which connects to the verse, verse two's all people. We should be working for the good of those suffering, though we think they should be working harder. God loved you even though you performed terribly in being godly. We should be caring for those who are in places of privilege and dominance even because God loved those who hated others and ignored the needs of others, who went forth in malice and ignorance about the needs of others. So we should love those we see as our privileged enemies with mercy and connection. That is verse 9 talks about loving those and being loved by those this verse when you know, arguing about genealogies. <laughs> Whose historic genealogies show conflict between our people groups. Loving those who are historically, when you look at them now, you think, oh, you're from that oppressive people group, right? Loving those whose genealogy suggests that you shouldn't. That we are not universalists in our belief and creed, no. But our belief and creed calls us to be a universally and publicly beneficial thing. That everyone should feel a little bit of heaven when believers are at work, even if they ultimately and possibly may not be headed there. You know, quarrels and dissensions and divisions talked about in verse 9. Y'all, I'm not talking from, from just some theory I read in a book. This happens all the time at Christ Central Church. This is par for the course. We, we have one, you know, a multi-ethnic, diverse church, and people go, man, this is really cool. No, it isn't. It's divisive in, the, in dissensions and issues and conflicts all the time. I can't preach a sermon for, without having somebody say, were you talking about us? Right? Why were you so left? Why were you so right? Why were you so liberal? Why were you so conservative? I mean, like verse 3, we are so enslaved to our personal worldly passions about things that we are like a slave. We're not free and have too impoverished take on and promote and fight and sacrifice uh, for us to promote and fight and sacrifice ourselves for the good of someone else. And, and our, at our church, we have real struggles over race and social justice and politics. And, and people have even left our church and decided that we are too leaning this way or that way or, or y'all too black or, or the black people, y'all too white and you're too social justice or you're, you're one of those social justice gospel people or not social justice enough and, and some have felt mistreated and not seen or heard and especially in a church like ours that they could, couldn't get along with others different in passions and position than they were. But, but more often than not, at the bottom is that we have become so enslaved with our viewpoint 
so guarded, so insecure, so afraid of being lost and losing that we become entrenched so that we are not able to release our personal passions for the good of someone else. We're so entrenched that we can't take on the passions of someone else that may keep them separated from the goodness of God. Whether it's a discussion on, in our church about how the worship service is set up, why y'all sing so long, why do y'all sing so short? Style and music and feel and discussions about ethnic and social justice issues, women's roles, economics, critical race theory, intersectionality, reparations, right? The view of police and guns. And when there was a shooting in Charlotte, I went on TV and I talked about the need for the police to do this. And we have two police officers in our church and his mom called me and was upset and blah, blah, blah. But the issues aren't even the issue. Look one more time at the heart not changed by the gospel in verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The problem is we can hate, despise, and have malice and envy for each other and set up walls of protection against between others because we are passionate about holding on to something in such a way that we can't think. What can I learn from this person? Not so I can be better at understanding the issue. I know us scholastic intellectual types. But what can I learn about this person in their situation so that I can be good to them? So that I can be a good servant for them? So that I can take the richness that I have wherever it is and lavish them with it. That's where I want to know. Where's your bank account emotionally and spiritually? Because I want to put a deposit there, right? Titus is saying that you've been loved. Like you've been all kinds of enemy with God, Right? This is a gospel called to not be a hateful, sectarian, argumentative, wall-building institution and people, but to be an out there with them and about them mission for the gospel. And I know in these kind of talks, whether it's from white, African-American, Asian, Hispanic-American friends, you know what I hear? I give up. I've tried. Right? I'm condemned if I do and condemned if I don't. I felt that. I've struggled, have to been told directly not to trust or give or love white people too much. Because they'll stab you in the back. My grandmama used to tell me because I lived in a pretty diverse neighborhood, and I had white friends, Eric and John, two German boys from down, from down the street. And I said, John and Eric are my friends. And she says, they're not your friends. 
They're letting you ride the train now. But at some point, in some situation, they're going to look at you and say, this is your stop. I was six when my grandma told me that. She died when I was six. I'm 48, and that still haunts me. What does it take? It takes exactly what verse 5 says. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to end here. Verse 4, rather. But when the kindness, goodness, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteous, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The hope of this public health care, spiritual care, is not that I hope that all the little arguments I told you, you'll get right. But the hope is you'll be able to do it and be transformed because you'll experience God's care for you through each other, through the ministry of the gospel. It is an impossible call otherwise. But like I said, you here at Covenant College are in a unique position for grace to go to work. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we're not just ears of an argument, a philosophy, a one, two, three. We're ears of a heart transforming Holy Spirit because of the finished work and love of Christ Jesus. Put us in the public places with an eye and a hand and an ear for the public good because of what you have shown and given us through Christ Jesus. This we ask and pray in his name.